Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Stubborn isn't a word I would use to describe myself. Pig-headed is more appropriate. Michael Bloomberg. But I think what's less spoken about and more difficult, and certainly I feel for myself as a man, I found much more difficult, was accepting help when it's offered to me. For example, you're rowing along, you're feeling really sick, you're vomiting away, you're feeling really weak, you're absolutely exhausted. One of the other guys says to you, oh, Al, you're looking a bit tired and weak and feeble right now. Would you like me to take over rowing for you and you go have a rest? Now, my instinct is immediately to say, no, I'm not tired, weak or feeble. Look how tough I am and just keep rowing and just grind and grind. I will never quit. I'll never give in. All the sort of stuff that got me around the world on my own is just uber persistence. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. 
<clears throat> Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck. We are stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear on this episode of Hiker Trash Radio. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping and returns over $40. Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirtbags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, help us out, take just a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you don't like what we're doing, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, author and former National Geographic Adventurer of the Year, Alistair Humphreys. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, Alistair. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's the one thing we did not cover in our pre-interview here is the pronunciation of your name. Did I get it? Did I get it right or did I butcher it? You did butcher it, but I'll let you off. I, um, I go for Alistair Humphreys, but anything in an American accent sounds cool. So I'm, I'm easy with whatever, you, whatever it comes out of your mouth is fine. That is the complete opposite here in America. Anything in a British accent is pretty darn cool. So, well, I have to say from my times traveling through America, one of my favorite things about it is just by speaking people suddenly think i'm far more heroic handsome and intelligent than i actually am so yeah that's a great thing about being british in america definitely you rack up all kinds of bonus points when as soon as you, as soon as you start talking absolutely yes okay yeah. and i vaguely look like prince harry as well which gives me some bonus points i can pretend to be royal <laughs> have you ever been asked for your autograph and then the person realizes they're not who they you're not who they thought they were you're not who <laughs> they thought you were. No, but th no, that would be fantastically awkward. I would enjoy that. <laughs> All right. Do you go by Al or do you, have you picked up a trail name along the way somewhere? We don't seem to have trail names in the UK, but so you can call me Al. Okay. I will call you Al. Now, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before, Al, or do you have no idea what you're getting yourself into today? I have no idea beyond the fact that I was looking to go on some podcasts and I Googled what are the best podcasts for outdoor types people, and it told me to come to you. I'm ready for whatever you throw at me. Beautiful, beautiful. Hey, I want to give you a heads up because we do have a segment towards the end of the episode called The Hiking Hack, and that is where I will turn to you and ask you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. Do you, do I can you, do that. Do you have any of that? Do you have some trail wisdom for us? I would hope so. I've spent okay. a lot of years wandering around in hills, so Perfect. hopefully something has sunk in from that. Perfect. Hey, let's get to our first segment. Trailblazers Toolkit. 
That's right. It's time for the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. Now, I love to talk about gear on the podcast, Al, and I love to hear about the most important item in my guest adventure gear. So if you were preparing for your next adventure and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? Give me all the specifics on that piece of gear. Tell me why you've got to have it out there. And this could be any kind of item. It could be gear. It could be apparel. It could be a luxury item. So, Al, what is that item in your toolkit? Oh, there are course in terms of landscape you go to and the temperature and all those sort of things. But And also there's the sort of mental difference of, am I going on a trip here to be ultra light as fast as possible and maybe to have a willfully miserable type two type experience or am i going on a long journey where a bit of comfort is part of that so there's all those juggly around things but having said all those i think my answer would be absolutely relevant to everything i've just said which is a notebook and a a pen to write things down um one thing i find really important on my own travels is to try to remind myself to slow down mentally and to just really be grateful for where I am, even at times when it sucks and it's cold and wet and you want to be at home, just to remind myself that I'm lucky to be doing this. And I've got into the habit on all my adventures of writing a lot every day, which I never do back in the normal world. I really appreciate that. And then later as time goes on and my memory fades, it's really great to have those rain-soaked, coffee-soaked, mosquito-splattered journals to look back on. That would be my pick on any adventure, large or small. Now, a journal, you prefer to go old school, where you actually have a pen in your hand and a journal in your in, open and you're writing on it, not doing your two-thumb typing on an electronic device. Yeah, phones smash, notebooks bend. But also, something I really appreciate on all trips is trying to get away from the curse and tyranny of cell phones and that sort of digital life. So there's, of course, an, a huge benefits to them, but just in terms of a creative, enjoyable experience. I want to sit outside my tent at night writing with pen and paper and not just tap-tapping away on my phone. Because if I do tap-tap away on my phone, I'm only a couple of clicks away from thinking, oh, maybe I'll just check my emails or, oh, maybe I'll just check uh, the sports website and see how my team's getting on. And that's very much tempting, but not what I want out of an outdoors experience. Absolutely. So much of what you just said resonates with me. It's all about being present. It's not about the destination. It's the journey. It's it's appreciating it while you're out there. And part of the appeal of being outdoors is escaping the day-to-day bustle and activity and obligations of daily life. So that is fantastic. I guess for me, there's there's one extra aspect, which is I like writing in my journal just for the those sort of being in the moment things but i also do it in order that when i come home i can remember what's happened so that i can write stories about that and i find that much more um, enjoyable process to do through reading back through a notebook splattered with mosquitoes say than just downloading a word document jeez there's not much joy involved in that yeah, the, the older I get, the more I find that I am way overconfident in my memory skills because uh, I'll say, oh, I remember that. And then I get back. I'm like, what What was that I was thinking about? What was that I was experiencing? So, yeah, notebook. Very valuable. All right. Yeah. But I guess then an extra thing to go on that thing is that sometimes my 
tool, my item of choice on an adventure might be a companion, specifically because in terms of my memory is so bad. And I feel quite sad that my solo adventures, once the memory has faded, that's gone forever, completely. Whereas at least the trips I did with a friend, we can meet up every so often and you go to a pub and he says, do you remember that thing? And I have, no, I don't remember this at all, but, and then with the laughing, the memory and the shared experiences comes back. And so that's a really lovely part of traveling with somebody else. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, hey, let's go to our next segment. Keep talking about some gear and some adventures. It's the hiking pole. It's the hiking pole, and that's pole spelled with two L's, like a survey, not like the thing you hold in your hand out there. I like to explain that to my guests because I came up with that, and I think I'm pretty clever, and their reaction is pretty much the same as yours. It's just a kind of a blank expression, so thank you. I thought you were talking about a man from Warsaw. (laughs) A man? Oh, the hiking pole. (laughs) That's 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 a new pun I can use. Thank you so much, Al. That's awesome. Now, this is a seven... It took you a couple of seconds. It did. It's early here. It it is early. (laughs) If I'm not as sharp as I usually am, it's because I just woke up like a half hour ago. This is a seven-question survey that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale, with one being completely insane and 100 being completely sane. And uh, there's an automatic 25-point deduction for anybody who makes me get up at 5 a.m. for an interview. So your top... (laughs) possible score is a 75 today okay cool i'll see how well i can do i'm looking forward to this okay so these are seven questions they're all related to hiking and it's not rapid response it is you give me an answer so i know which way which side of the issue you fall on but then you also have to give me some explanation for your answer that'll help me calibrate my score for you okay all right you ready for this yeah okay so question number one easy one At least I think it's easy, but I'm constantly surprised by some of my guests. Question number one, trekking poles or no trekking poles out there? The the simple answer is trekking poles. The slightly longer answer is it depends on how long the trip is. So if I'm just, and also the landscape that I'm going in, but if I'm doing a fairly long adventurous thing, certainly some sort of overnight thing with a moderately heavy pack, then I am team hiking poles and I think I went through a phase probably that a lot of people do which was that I used to mock hiking poles I was too young fit fast and heroic for wimpy old hiking poles and then my knees started to hurt a bit and I started to fall over (laughs) walking down hills and yet now I'm a big fan I think they're fantastic and they're also they also acquire bonus points because they're really good for pointing at things within a sort of headmasterly school teacher sort of way that makes you feel quite powerful so i like it. i like pointing at things with my hiking poles as well as walking down rocky mountains yes that that mocking of the hiking poles when you're younger that is a tale as old as time that that's a is a mm-hmm. common process people go through and they they've come to realize how great they are for pointing at things so nicely done <laughs> all right question number two what's on your feet boots trail runners or something else Pretty much just normal trainers these days. Yeah, I've got, and that's been a progression from good old-fashioned leather hiking boots, which my parents taught me was what I should use, and there's some obvious benefits to those for support, but they also weigh about 20 pounds each, and my skinny little chicken legs aren't up for that. I've moved more and more towards just regular trainers these days. Okay, and... I guess I do have also... I do have, if I'm going 
up, say, in mountainous conditions where it's going to be muddy and skiddy, then I have the trail shoes with better grip type grippy bottoms but for normal if i was going to say walk across america i would do that in a pair of trainers just walk across sneakers. america some, sneakers yeah i was going to ask you to define trainers for me sneakers tennis yeah. tennis shoes yeah the sort of stuff you'd use if you're going to go run a marathon i'd wear those sort of shoes to walk across america plus also some shorts and a t-shirt got it is that a past adventure or an upcoming adventure walking across america i just thought of it just then yeah I haven't done that. I've, I've walked across southern India, uh, but I haven't walked across America. Have you heard of your fellow countryman, Rob Pope? I have not. Okay. He wrote a book called yeah. Becoming Forest, and he actually recreated the Forest ah. Gump run across America. He ran across America five and a half times. Or not five and a half. I, I think I it was maybe five. Yeah. Yes, I know exactly who you mean now. Yes, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic guy. All right, where were we? Uh, question number three on the hiking pole. Back to the hiking pole. When it comes to your shelter system out there, uh, do you prefer tent, tarp, hammock, bivy, or cowboy camping? This completely depends. Again, this is a hard question. For example, if I was, for example, crossing Siberia in the middle of winter, then I was quite glad to have a tent in that situation. When I walked through northern Spain with no money and only a violin to earn some money, I had a very lightweight tent. If I'm just going away for an overnight, I really like to have a hammock, although that sucks in Britain because we've chopped down all our trees. And I really enjoy just the bivy bag, the sort of waterproof bag that goes over your sleeping bag. I think that's my purest, simplest option, which I suppose is getting towards cowboy camping, which is fantastic, except when it rains and then it sucks and it's bad in Scotland where we have midges, these tiny little flies. I think you call them noceums or something, tiny little things that can destroy a man in a way you cannot begin to imagine. So am I allowed to give you a depends answer or do I have to choose one? No, I just love hearing your thought process and all this. So you're a complicated guy with a lot of experience. So you've got a lot to, to add here. Okay. I guess if I had to choose, I think if, I, if you just said to me, Al, pack your bags, we're going for a long hike, I would take a tent. Okay. You know, the weather's nice. Uh, you leave the fly off, and you've just got the meshy inside your bit, and that keeps off the mosquitoes. If the weather's really nice, you don't bother with the tent that night, and you just sleep out by the campfires. Yeah, I think a tent is the overall safest option. And they these days they can be so lightweight as well, so mm -hmm. they so, um, they're not much of a burden. Yeah, I don't want you to change your style of answering. There is an obvious point deduction for just not making a decision. No, I made a decision. I said tent. <laughs> we got there eventually. We did. Yeah, we okay. got to the answer eventually. Okay. Question number four. When it comes to your sleep system. You've already taken 25 points <laughs> off me. I'm not, you're not taking points off of the tent. I said tent. <laughs> Al, this is my poll. All right. I, I am the scorer of this poll. You just yeah, provide I'm the answers. I'm a competitive guy. Yeah. A low score is a badge of honor. Just think of it, think of it that way. Ah, okay. <laughs> when it comes to your sleep system, question number four, are you a sleeping bag guy or a quilt guy? Sleeping bag. Quilts are ridiculous. They are stupid invention. They're cold. They're uncomfortable. They fall off you in the night. They're terrible. Yeah, terrible. There, how was that for an answer that wasn't sitting on the fence? Al, tell us how you really feel. That was definitive right there. Thank you. All right. Question number five. 
When it comes to food on the trail, are you a stove guy, cold soak, or stoveless? What was the second option? Cold soak. What's that? Oh, good. There's a huge point deduction. If you're a cold soaker or somebody who does not bring a stove, and instead they bring an empty peanut butter jar, and they put their ramen in there maybe an hour out from camp, and they fill it with water, and they let it soak, and then they eat the cold, miserable gruel when they're sitting at camp without opening up a stove. Okay, I have been a cold soak guy through forgetting my stove (laughs) and through running out of fuel. So I have done that. In those situations, so I prefer to eat the ramen like a piece of toast. You just spread some jam on top of it or something and eat it more like a sandwich. So I would do that rather than being a cold soaker. I, For a really short trip, I don't bother with the stove. I would just eat other stuff that doesn't need cooking. Or I would cook on a little camping fire. I really enjoy doing that. But for a longer journey, then I'm definitely a stove guy. It's just really for the nutrition, but also just for the comfort of after a long day, being able to make yourself a cup of tea. I'm English after all. So yeah, I think I'm a stove guy overall. Okay. Now, I know you're familiar with the that American tradition of assigning trail names to folks out on the trail because of something that that happens, something that they've said, maybe where they're from. And I apply that same process to each episode, looking for a trail name for the episode. And I think we may have just stumbled across it. This might be the accidental cold soaker, Alistair Humphreys. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I like that concept. All right. Hey, question number six, is life better above or below the tree line? Above. Yeah, above. I like getting up high and particularly coming from Britain where our high in England, the highest mountain is about a thousand feet. No, not a thousand feet, 3000 feet, less than 3000 feet. The chance to get up above a tree line is great. Yeah, I, I like getting high. Okay. And question number seven, what's more important, pack weight or luxury items? Pack weight. I think that something I really enjoy about long hikes is the simplification of life and doing it as a way to appreciate my real life back home. And you can appreciate your real life back home through all sorts of aspects. But the one relevant to this question is it's quite nice to get home to a warm, comfy bed after you've had a fairly simplistic, minimalist experience. So, yeah, I definitely would go light my exception to that my only exception to that is i will not tolerate being freezing cold all the way through the night just to save a few ounces of weight hence my uh, angry answer about quilts <laughs> that was an angry answer so yeah, all right i've spent too many nights freezing cold out of my own stupid masochism tough guy nature and i'm too old to be cold anymore <laughs> too old to be cold It's a a song from the 80s. All right. Hey, give me a second here. This is the mathematical portion of the podcast. I've got to do some, I got to take your answers and put them through the Hacker Trash Radio algorithm. So I have to carry the three. We're going to multiply that by pi. And we're going to divide by root five. It's very complicated, Al. And then I'm going to make a slight adjustment for how many things you've pointed at with your trekking poles today. And I come up with a score of 59. 
Do I get any extra points for saying them in an English accent? Possibly. Possibly, yes. Okay. That, that, that is just the score for right now. That score has the opportunity to adjust downward or upward, depending on how the rest of the interview goes. Depending on my behavior going forward. That's right. That's right. And I don't think we told people, I think we did this before we started recording, but I don't think we told people where exactly you're sitting right now because it is, you've got these shelves behind you just, just stacked with books sideways. Where are you calling in from today? which is in my garden just outside London in England. And it's a shed where I write. And yes, the wall behind is covered with travel and adventure books. Got some good hiking books on there. And then the walls are covered with mats. And I've run out of space. So the ceiling is also covered with more mats. Yeah, it's a room designed for planning adventures, reading about adventures and writing adventures. So yeah, I love my shed. Nice. All right. Hey, Al, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. We would love to hear about your background and where you grew up and how you got involved in the outdoor adventure cult. <laughs> cult. Uh, I grew up in the north of England, a rural upbringing, just a happy, simple childhood of running around the hills and fields and that sort of stuff. But I wasn't really particularly any more adventurous uh, than any other kid, really, until... I guess when I became a student, I got really interested in reading travel and adventure books. And that then set me off on uh, wanting to go have adventures of my own to see if I could do anything like these crazy books that I was reading. I first of all cycled around the world for four years. And to that, I had got a bit tired of bicycling. So then I walked across southern India. I think one of the keys to a good adventure is making it slow simple and miserable. So if you want to go slower and more painful than bicycling, you go on foot. So I walked across southern India. And then I've done some other expeditions. I hauled a heavy sledge around the ice cap of Greenland. I spent a couple of months up on the Arctic Ocean near the North Pole. I walked across the empty quarter desert in the Middle East for a thousand miles. I walked through northern Spain following an old book that I loved playing the violin and I cannot I literally cannot play the violin so it was a horrifically embarrassing experience and quite a hungry experience and then one final walk I've done which I think is actually really interesting even though it sounds quite stupid is around London where I live there's a huge road going around the city the huge freeway it's called the M25 I guess every city has this equivalent road that goes around the city and it sucks it's full of traffic everyone hates it I spent a week walking a whole lap of London, just following my nose as close to this road as I could, which showed me that I could actually find nature and wildness and adventure, even somewhere as suburban as bo and as boring as that. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of different adventures on foot or bike. Oh, and I also rode in a little boat across the Atlantic Ocean. So I've done boats and bikes and foot and different sorts of big adventures and small adventures too. Yeah, you almost forgot about rowing across the Atlantic. Oh, I also, one, one night I slept outside by the Hollywood sign, not too far from where you are, which is a pretty cool, beautiful night and absolutely fantastic. It's so just, yeah, very atmospheric and great. Is that allowed? It is easier to seek forgiveness than permission. It's one of the key <laughs> rules of adventuring. Alistair, that was a great little recap of all of your adventures. But what I took out of that was another possible episode title. We have The Accidental Cold Soaker, Alistair Humphreys, or we have Slow, Simple, and Miserable, Alistair Humphreys. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's that could uh, sum up my character and personality as well. <laughs> yes, that's what I was thinking, but I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to make the connection obvious, but you, you did it for us. Thank you. All right. Now, I mentioned earlier that you're an author. Can you take us through a brief tour of your titles and subjects? If someone wanted to read what you've written, I mean, what would they be looking for? I've written 16 books, so I'll spare you all of them. But I've written books about, say, four years cycling around the world. I've written travel books about that and walking across India and playing the violin very badly through Spain. They're standard travel adventure type stories. I've written slightly more guidebooky things on how to have either big adventures, a one called Grand Adventures. I had the idea that if you saved up $20 a week every week for a year, by the end of the year, you'd have $1,000 and you've had a year to plan. What fantastic stuff could you go do that in, in that time? I think most people get put off adventures because they say, oh, I haven't got enough time. I haven't got enough money. So I'm like, right, here you are. Save up $1,000 over a year. You've got all your planning done. No excuses. Get out and do it. And I've written books for children about adventures. And most recently, I've just written a book about spending a whole year exploring just the single small map that I live on, just a small 20 kilometers by 20 kilometers. So 12 miles by 12 miles, pretty boring suburban landscape just outside London. Can I find wildness and adventure close to home? That's called local. Yeah, I've written quite a few books of different styles. Yeah, and as we're talking here, I'm looking off to my left, uh, not because I'm ignoring you, because but because I have a list, I have your website up with your books displayed. And yeah, some of them look like they're obviously illustrated on the cover that they are look like they're for, for children, which is fantastic. And then I've got others here, Micro Adventures and Grand Adventures, two separate books. They look like they're a, a companion set because of the way the, the cover is. Yeah, so Grand Adventures was, as I explained, the save up for over a year and go do something big. So that's got chapters on how to cycle around the world or walk across Mongolia or those sort of things. Micro adventures followed on from me spending a week walking around London, which was this idea of can you find short, simple, local, affordable adventures close to where you live and fit that in around the busyness of your real life, your friends, your family, your career. Can you still squeeze some adventure in? I think it's great to dream big, like dreaming of a huge, big adventure one day. But I think it's also really probably better to actually just think, right, what can I do this evening after work? What can I do this weekend? So Micro Adventures is about short, simple, local adventure. And that's probably been my most successful book, I think. Yeah, dreaming about grand adventures may prevent you from actually taking the grand adventure, right? I mean, if you're waiting to accumulate enough money or enough time, uh, or the perfect gear that might be uh, that might inhibit you from actually getting out there and doing it. Whereas I love the the concept of this is that there's there's adventure everywhere. Yeah. So you your very first question to me was about the most important piece of equipment I take on a trip, and I thought that being a polite Englishman, I should begin the podcast by politely answering your question. But what I actually wanted to say when you asked me that question is. I really hate being asked about gear because I fear that so often we use the notion of thinking about gear or saving up for gear as a, a sort of alternative to just actually get out there and do it. The clothes that you and I are wearing today, plus a raincoat, is better than most explorers had 300 years ago. So um, I, I think um, whilst it is quite fun to plan and daydream about trips, 
I don't think you should lose sight of the important thing, which is actually just go do what you can with what you've got and do it now. I think that's much more important personally. Now, Al, when we come back for the second segment here after the break, I want you to, to strip away all of that English politeness. And I want you to say, just be your actual self. And if I ask a question that you don't agree with or think is just ridiculous, you say, Doc, that, that question is bollocks. And you, you just explain how you really feel. I mean, don't sugarcoat it. Okay. It might be a short episode, but well, let's do that. <laughs> That's why we waited for the second segment. At least we got a half hour of the British politeness. Okay, <laughs> great. I'm ready. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, hear from the advertisers, pay some bills. And when we come back, we're going to get into some of those grand adventures, some of those micro adventures, and also want to talk about National Geographic Explorer of the Year. I'm very interested. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, hikers. Ever conquered a peak only to find your feet a battlefield of blisters and hotspots? It's enough to make you want to pack it in and head home. But what if there was a way to hike harder, longer, and with more comfort? Introducing Creepers Merino Toe Socks. Made with ultra-soft merino wool and seamless construction, these socks are designed to minimize blisters and hot spots, even on the most demanding trails. Imagine this. You're miles into your hike, the sun is shining, and your feet feel light and airy. You're not worried about blisters or hot spots, just the beauty of the wilderness surrounding you. That's the power of Creepers Socks. Don't let blisters hold you back from your next adventure. Get your hands on a pair of Creepers Merino Toe Socks today and experience the difference. Visit the website by following the link in the show notes to get 10% off your order. Make sure to use the discount code HTRADIO to let them know Doc sent you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. 
They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Thru-hiker owned, Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And welcome back. We're talking to Alistair Humphreys, also known as Al, or just slow, simple, and miserable. In the first half of the seg- first half of the episode, we heard about a little bit about his adventures, where he grew up. I want to get in, take a deeper dive with some of your adventures here. So you just glossed over cycling around the world for four years. What in the world? What was the inspiration for that? What kind of prep and planning? And take us through some of the more unusual moments on that world tour. The inspiration from it was reading loads of books of people who'd done big, exciting adventures. So I got a map of the world and I started thinking, oh, it'd be great to cycle maybe from my house in England to, let's say, to India. That'd be cool. And then, But then you look at it and you think, if I've got to India, maybe I should just carry on and get to Australia. And so the idea sort of grew and grew like that until I came up with the idea of, well, let's try and cycle around the world. And I didn't really mean that. And I certainly didn't actually think that I would actually cycle around the world. What I really meant was, Let's just give myself permission to dare to go on a big adventure until I run out of money or I get scared or I think of something more interesting to do with my life and then I'll come home. But it's good to have a nice catchy phrase and it's good to aim for something higher than you actually think you are capable of. I did my planning really consisted of doing enough reading to get me excited and then enough sensible research sorting out the passport, stuff like that, enough sensible planning to give me the courage to get out the front door and begin. And then beyond that, I didn't really do very much planning. And I tried to dare myself to do as little possible, as little planning as possible. I wanted to have planned enough to be safe and competent, but I wanted to allow as much as possible to be up to serendipity and chance. So I aimed for a um, strategy of pragmatic recklessness that's what I was trying to go for so I I didn't have much money I'd been working student jobs and saving up money so I had about ten thousand dollars was all I had so I knew that if I wanted to go far then I had to live cheap so I slept in my tent by the road I ate a lot of pasta and banana sandwiches it was quite a dirt bag experience and I cycled from England through Europe through the Middle East all the way down Africa to South Africa then I got on a sailing boat across the Atlantic Ocean and I cycled from the bottom of South America, from Patagonia, all the way up the west coast of of South America, up through the US, probably past your front door, uh, up the west coast of America, 
uh, through the Yukon. Uh, there was a huge forest fire in the Yukon, so I couldn't cycle for a while. So I had to go by canoe for 500 miles through the Yukon, then back on the bicycle up to Prudhoe Bay, uh, the very top of Alaska, the Arctic Ocean, northern tip of Alaska. And then I took a boat across the Pacific, and I cycled through Siberia in the middle of winter, which was stupid, and then all the way down Japan, right the way across China, through countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, eventually back to Istanbul, to Turkey, and all the way across Europe, back home again to England for a nice cup of tea. Four years, 46,000 miles, 60 countries, $10,000. Wow. That, that, in terms of uh, dollar per mile, that, that's a pretty good uh, return on investment. Yeah, certainly, yeah, dollar per mile and also dollar per day of adventuring fun. And a lot of that came just because I was young, I didn't have much money, and I was faced every, literally every day with a choice of, should I buy this expensive food for $10 or should I buy something really cheap for $1 and have 10 more days of cycling? And it was just constantly weighing up that choice. It was hard to, it's hard to live really cheap. I'd be dreaming of going into a cafe to buy a cold Coca-Cola or to buy a chocolate bar. I'd be like, oh, I dream of this. And, I, and so it was hard. But equally, as I, I think I mentioned it earlier, part of the thing of adventures is to remind yourself to appreciate things in life. So, to, so I'm very grateful that I did it in such a simple sort of way. What was it like cycling through Siberia in winter? You rushed right past that. Like you didn't want to remember it too much. Yeah. It was cold. It was. It got down to minus 40 degrees. That was the coldest it got there. I was there for about three months. It was really tough. But interestingly, when you're somewhere cold, you're just dreaming of being somewhere hot. But I found, for example, I cycled through the Nubian Desert in Sudan, where it was 45 Celsius. That's way, way over 100 Fahrenheit. It was ridiculously hot. And all I was dreaming of then was rolling around in the snow. So that's another interesting aspect of adventures is that whatever misery you've got now, you're always dreaming of some other sort of misery. But Russia was hard, for sure. Camping at those conditions was pretty tough. But every few days along the way, I'd get to a tiny little village and I'd essentially knock on someone's door in Siberia and they'd open the door and I'd say, hello, I'm from England cycling around the world. Please, can I put my tent up in your garden? And they'd say, you can't put your tent up. It's minus 40 degrees, you idiot. Come into our house, sleep by our warm fire tonight and have some lovely food, which was secretly what I'd been hoping for when I asked to put the tent up. But the, the kindness and the generosity of people all around the world was the single best aspect of it. And countries like Russia, they get a bit of a bad pressure or press or something through the Middle East, just unending generosity and kindness. And traveling the world is such a fantastic way to see what the world's really, not just what the idiot leaders are like or the bad news on TV. So that's something I'm really grateful for, is just having to just trust the kindness of the world for four years it's a good experience yeah you beat me to my next question which was forty-six thousand miles 60 countries you had a chance to be up close and personal with a lot of different cultures and what were some of the takeaways uh, anything else you want to add to that gosh I, yeah the world is kinder and warmer and more welcoming than you realize until you go out there and travel it um i love the commonality of even when you couldn't speak a language 
and had seemingly nothing in common. I'm a guy from the rich world. These, here's some people from the poor world, seemingly nothing in common. And then someone walks down the street, trips on a banana skin, and we all burst out laughing. I love that sort of commonality of human experience at the heart of it. Yeah, was that banana skin from your banana sandwich you left out there? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I ate a lot of banana sandwiches. That became, that was, I'd say that plus pasta was my staple for the world. But it's interesting, though, in terms of food, that the richer the country, the worse my diet became. For example, in, let's say, Africa or poor parts of Asia, my mission everywhere was just, what's the cheapest food possible? And in those poor countries, the cheap food is you go to a, a stall by the side of the road and someone cooks you some noodles and chucks in some vegetables and it's boiling hot and tasty. You go to a shop in a rich country, let's say America, the cheapest way to eat there is to get like a huge loaf of processed white bread and a huge tub of peanut butter full of sugar and it's less tasty and less healthy so interestingly i felt more like a king of the world traveling through the poorer parts than the, the wealthier bits say america or europe that's a strange inverse relationship you just described there interesting yeah it's really interesting and and there's also a it's hard to generalize but roughly speaking there's an inverse relationship between the kindness and the welcome i received from people really poor places, you arrive in the village and everyone's like, wow, look at this guy. This is really interesting. Tell us your story. Here's some food. I cycle through, uh, I'll choose America just because you're, you, you're in America, it's not picking on you guys, but there, so in the poor part, I was like, there was like, wow, here's a guy on a bicycle with these bags. He must be rich. And then in America, it's, whoa, there's a dirt bag on a bike with some bicycles. He must be dodgy and suspicious. Let's lock our doors up. So there's definitely that correlation. Although having said that, I do because America gets bashed around the world, and I'm a big defender of America. That I had a fantastic time cycling through the states, and I received a lot of kindness, and I really enjoyed my time in America. Dodgy and suspicious, another possible title. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I also mentioned at the outset that you were the National Geographic Explorer of the Year. What year was that? I prefer not to reflect too much on years. Years are just a number. Uh, it was quite a long time ago. It was 2012. It was the adventure of the year. And it was for the micro-adventures that I briefly talked about. It was quite interesting that I set out, essentially, I was doing these big adventures, and I was really dreaming of being, oh, I want to be a new heroic explorer guy. But actually, what has resonated with audiences much more was when I just started saying, hey, why don't you just go leave the office this evening after work and go sleep on the local beach or on the local hill behind your woods or something like that. So yeah, the the National Geographic gave me that for encouraging people to get out and have short, simple, local adventures. I was completely surprised and I was absolutely delighted. Yeah, that is pretty ironic. You think of adventure of the year and I just, we just went through 46,000 miles in 60 countries. I'm like, that's obviously why he was the adventure of the year. But no, it's about yeah, saying, no hey, go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go outside your, <clears throat> your local park and, and, and sleep out there. Yeah, so I, I mm. did spend quite a lot of years trying to do these big adventures that, that we've briefly mentioned because I wanted to make a career as a writer, right? and maybe uh, speaking, giving talks and conferences about these big adventures. But there's loads of middle-class white men doing big, stupid stuff. Uh, And so, yeah, it was quite ironic that my career took off when I just started to go and swim in the river on the outskirts of town. (laughs) 
Now, was the rowing across the Atlantic, that was not the same trip as biking around the world. That was a separate trip. You didn't just throw your bike into a rowboat and say, hey, I, I need to get over there to continue my journey. <laughs> no, separate enterprises. And what was the inspiration for that? The inspiration for that was I got an email one day from some guy who I'd never met from Slovenia saying, hello, we're about to go and row across the Atlantic Ocean. There are four of us. Unfortunately, one guy's just had to drop out. None of our friends want to come. I've seen your website. Do you want to join us? We leave in six weeks' time. So I'm like, geez, when an email like that comes in, you've just got to say, yeah, sure. So I essentially set out to row the ocean with three people I'd never met before in my life, which definitely had a risk of fist fights, but actually turned out very well. Just a random email from some guy in Slovenia? That's wild. Yeah, yeah. so I did. I thought I'd better do a bit of due diligence. So I checked, I met him, and I spent about 24 hours with him, and I liked him, and I asked lots of questions about the safety and the plans and that sort of side of things, and I, I felt reassured about his competence, but the other two guys I didn't meet until we actually got to the start line to set off to Rose. I'd never, they, they were t one was English, one was Irish. I'd never met them at all until the start line. It was very much a risk of a personality clash, but I, opportunities for big adventure, when they come along, the time is never perfect for these things, is it? So you've just got to say yes, and then figure out the details later. When does this story hit the silver screen? Because you could go a couple of different ways with this particular adventure. This could be the setting for a horror movie. I, you talk about dodgy and suspicious. I get an email asking to row across the Atlantic, and it turns out that they're, they're using me for body parts. Or it could be a wonderful documentary with Brad Pitt playing you in the lead role. Nice. I like the sound of that more than the first option. It's, yeah, I, I, I did film it, but I didn't feel... Not much happens at sea, really. You basically, you row for two hours, you sleep for two hours, you row for two hours, you sleep for two hours. For about 10 days, I was vomiting my guts out. I did film it and I took photos, but not that much happens, really. It's much more of an interesting mental thing than filming. I've filmed some of my other adventures in greater depth and detail, which is a really interesting shift in the purpose of a journey am i walking from a to b to enjoy the walking from a to b or am i doing it in order to make a film and what's my priority and where do things fit in on the spectrum of things and i found that filming yourself on an adventure is a massive pain it's a real hassle and there's a risk that takes you away from all of that good stuff of being in the moment and really just embracing what you're doing it certainly adds several kilograms to your pack with heavy old batteries but I personally have come to really enjoy the creative side of adventuring. I really enjoy trying to take nice photos or trying to think in my head, how will I articulate what I'm seeing and feeling to tell this story? And filmmaking is another aspect of that. It's how can I film this to get to some sort of truth of what we're doing beyond just the pretty sunset? So I've really enjoyed filming adventures, although it completely and utterly changes the dynamic of the experience. Um, I think if you can do it with someone else, you need to be both very much committed to doing that. Yeah, I, I was thinking, Al, more along the lines of instead of a Slovenian guy stumbling across your website and send you a sending you a random email, that Spielberg, 
stumbles across your your website and sends you an email saying, hey, I'd like to make a movie about uh, some of your adventures, including this whole little thing about rowing across the Atlantic. Yeah, I'm keen. I'm Sign me up. If, okay. Stephen, if you're listening, I'm keen. Yeah, he's a regular listener to the podcast, so we, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll reach out to him. Now, also, I'm a little fascinated about tight quarters, adventures in tight quarters. I've talked to a, a few people recently just a couple nights ago, I talked to three guys who were on a two-person portal ledge on the side of El Capitan in Yosemite for, for five days, which not a lot of privacy in, in, that, in those circumstances. I also talked to Tim Jarvis, who uh, recreated Shackleton's journey from Elephant Island back to uh, South Georgia. That's right, South Georgia. Four, four or five guys on this uh, boat in extreme conditions and uh, just how miserable and fun that was. What take us through some of the tight quarters and uh, logistics of being on a a rowboat in the Atlantic with three other guys? How big was the rowboat? It was eight meters. So what's that? Twenty two feet, I think, something like that. That the boat, by the way, that Shackleton escaped from Elephant Island on. I've seen that. It's out. It's in a school. It's his old high school in London. It's just there, and all the kids are walking past it on their way to their maths lessons and things. And I'm standing in front of it, going, "Wow!" And these teenagers are just like, "Yeah, whatever." Some old boat. Yeah, the tight quarters of being on that rowing boat was the most important aspect of the trip. And to be honest, that was why I agreed to go at just six weeks' notice because. I didn't have time to get physically fit, really, in that time. The main mission, actually, was to try and get as fat as possible, which is really fun. How fat can I get in six weeks? It was great. But the reason I wasn't too worried about it was because I felt that <laughs> I felt, I think I'm not a very annoying person. <laughs> People may correct me on that, but I feel I'm not that annoying person. I'm quite sensitive to how other people are feeling. And then I also thought, for the sake of this trip, 45 days and nights, However much I hate this guy, I'm, I can just suck that up. I can absorb that for that long, and then we'll have a massive fist fight at the end. But I felt that living together with people was my main consideration for it, and I thought that I would be fine in doing so. And that was actually the key part to the whole adventure. Rowing the oceans, nothing about finding four strong, beefy guys who can row really hard. That's, any idiot can row. It's not, that's not really the issue. The issue is how do you spend time together? And I think, obviously, if you're going to spend time on an adventure with people, then, of course, you, you try to be helpful, don't you? You, know, you offer to help, and you try and be the good guy, helping more. You're not going to be that annoying person who never helps anyone. So you try and help. And I think that's obvious. But I think what's less spoken about and more difficult, and certainly I feel for myself as a man I found much more difficult, was accepting help when it's offered to me for example you're rowing along you're feeling really sick you're vomiting away you're feeling really weak you're absolutely exhausted one of the other guys says to you oh al you're looking a bit tired and weak and feeble right now would you like me to take over rowing for you and you go have a rest now my instinct is immediately to say no i'm not tired weak or feeble look how tough i am and just rowing and just grind and grind i will never quit i'll never give in all the sort of stuff that got me around the world on my own. It's just uber persistence. But that's pretty dumb, really, when you're rowing an ocean. And the best way to get the boat across quickly is to have the two guys who are feeling well rowing at any time. So 
what I had to learn to do, and we all did this, was not only to offer help, that's obvious, but to accept it, to say thank you. Yes, I am feeling weak right now. I am feeling terrible. I am having a hard time. And I'd be very grateful if you rode for an extra half an hour and I got a bit of sleep. And then I will pay that back to you later on in the trip. So I think for, that would be my suggestion to men in particular who are going away on adventures together is, of course, be kind to each other, but also accept kindness. Acknowledge that you are weak and struggling and accept kindness. And I found that really hard, but very rewarding. And was this just a, a pure rowboat? Was there a sail on it? Was it was it open and exposed? Were there covered quarters? What did it, Give us a, a visual image of this. It's it, it looks more like a sailing boat. If you imagine a, a small yacht, but you chop the, the mast off. So there's a little cabin at the back where two people can crouch down. It's like a two-man tent, but, but a proper cabin at the back. And then at the front, there's a tiny cabin, which is about the size and shape of a coffin, which was brightening to go in but actually was the best place to get a decent sleep without someone bothering you looking for a spanner or something and without just getting shaken all over the boat so the coffin at the front was the best luxury real estate and then there were seats for two people to row like the sort of rowing in olympics where people slide you slide up and down the seat and you row with two oars in one in each hand and so two people would row at a time and two people would rest at a time there are no sails and that's really strict, strict. The sort of moral code of ocean rowing means you shouldn't even really hang up your shirts to dry lest the wind blows them and speeds you along. So, yeah, definitely no sails allowed. Was this a competition of some sort? Was it a race? There are competitions and races, but you have to pay to enter those. Although you do then, with that payment, you get like the backup of a safety yacht who's vaguely around in case of need. But we didn't care about racing and we didn't want to pay a big fee just for that. So we just did it just for the fun of, of doing it. So just for the experience of doing it. Yeah. Who needs a safety yacht, right? <laughs> what I mean, it's quite interesting, really, to be out in the ocean. This was the most remote I've ever been in my life. When I was cycling around the world, I was in some crazy places, but I was always near some other humans. And actually, they're often going to be the problem rather than the solution, or maybe both. But in the ocean, there's no one. There's no one who's going to mug you and steal your wallet. But equally, there's also no one who's going to help you if your appendix bursts. All you can do is just get on the radio and call and hope that the nearest there's a big transatlantic ship vaguely nearby. And often the nearest humans to us were the astronauts on the International Space Station circling overhead, which I found wonderful to be that far from boring old real life. I found really lovely. Now, as you are laying down in the coffin quarters at the front of the boat, slipping off to uh, sleep out there in the middle of the Atlantic, any existential thoughts or moments about your place in the world or universe? Gosh, geez. Well, I, I really enjoy wild spaces just to feel very small and to try to put my problems from back home into some sort of perspective and also to, I love the solitude of being out in these places but solitude is the other side of the coin from loneliness and depending how you feel on adventures you can teeter between the two the wonderful solitude the crushing sadness of loneliness so I, the, I try to steer towards the solitude but whilst also remembering to be grateful for all those people that I care about back home but uh, yeah, I just love the I think what I like more than the bigness of the universe is just the fact the reminder of hey I can just live life 
really simply out here. All I need for a good day is to cover a few miles, have somewhere to sleep at night and some food to eat. And if I've done those things, then the day has been a success. And I, I like that amidst the busy rush of 21st century mayhem. Well said, sir. Now, we have lots of other big adventures here on the list that we're not going to have a chance to get to because I want to make sure that we have enough time to talk about your micro adventures and also sustainable and fair adventure and travel. So I'm going to have to ask you to commit to come back on the podcast at a later time to delve a little bit deeper into some of these other grand adventures that you've taken. Sure, I'd love to. I'm enjoying it. All right, listeners, you heard that. He's committed now. So let's transition to micro adventures and local adventures and uh, the reason why you became the National Geographic Explorer of the Year. Okay. That, that wasn't a question. By no, way. It was. It was statement. a statement. And then I wait to see what happens. And okay, there was an awkward <laughs> silence. And I was going to politely fill in being a polite Englishman. But you told me not to be that. So I'll just say you screwed up and didn't ask me a question there. So you sort out your job and then I'll answer it. Okay. Hey, Al, tell us about how you transitioned from these grand adventures to micro adventures. Why did that happen? That's a great question, Doc. They happened for several reasons. One was this realization I had, say, if I was in the coffin on the Atlantic Ocean, sweating away, or I was in a tent on the ice cap in Greenland, freezing away, or I was lying out under the stars in the empty quarter desert in Oman. Very different places, very different types of journey. But what I was getting out of this was pretty much the same yeah, the things that really mattered to me about all these adventures were inside my heart and my head, really. It was like the mindset of it all. And therefore, maybe I didn't need to go all the way around the world to find that sort of stuff. Maybe I could find it closer to home. And the second aspect was this growing notion I had that there were a lot of people who were interested in hearing about big adventures. And I was writing books. I was giving talks. Um, there's loads of podcasts about adventures. Lots of people love this sort of stuff. But... Most people don't have the time to cycle around the world or the money to row across an ocean or something like that. So how could I try and get the good stuff of adventure more accessible to more people in more places more of the time? And so what I started doing was thinking of ideas of big adventures, like let's say, oh, I'd like to walk around the world. Okay, how can we shrink that down? Let's walk around my hometown. So I walked around London or I'd like to cycle around the world we don't have the time to do that. Let's go cycle around Catalina Island this weekend. So have the big, exciting adventure dreams that are lovely to have, and then work out what's getting in your way, what obstacles there are. And usually that's a lack of time or a lack of money, a perceived lack of equipment or expertise, or a perceived thought that where I live is rubbish for adventure. I can't have adventure until I go to montana or mongolia so they're the barriers so then the challenge is trying to work out a smaller and smaller iteration of your adventure idea until it suddenly does become possible it's short enough it's cheap enough it's simple enough uh, for you to do within your circumstances and you have to keep going smaller and smaller until there is an adventure idea and it's always possible to find something it might be tiny might be an hour in your lunch break but you can always get smaller and find something until eventually you get to a point whereby if you're still making excuses and not going on adventures, that's when you need to go take 
a long, hard look in the mirror and accept your own wimpish, lazy, pathetic procrastination because I've run out of patience, my friend. So that's the essence of trying to encourage micro-adventures. That turned hostile at the end. You uh, definitely (laughs) threw down the gauntlet there. (laughs) I do eventually get exasperated with people who... There are things that get in the way. Now, everyone has complications and stuff happening in lives. I appreciate that. But it's much better to look at the opportunities than the obstacles. What potential for adventure does still remain? And that might be tiny, but it's better than doing nothing. And the good thing about doing the tiny micro-adventure is you've then done it. You've got that confidence. You've got the momentum. The next one you plan is much easier to do. And then you start to get momentum and forward movements, and then you can grow onto bigger and bigger adventures, perhaps. I'm going to summarize um, with three words. I think what, uh, you've done a great job explaining it, but to simplify it, and, and I want you to take these three words and work them into your next book. You can attribute them to me or not. That's up to you. But adventure is scalable. Right? There's the grand yeah. scale and then there's the, the micro scale. Yeah. And can I add three more words? Absolutely. And not comparative. I think there's a real issue with people thinking, oh, my, this doesn't really count as an adventure because Bear Grylls did something much bigger and ate a dead chicken or something. So I think comparing your adventure to other people's is a really unhelpful thing. If it feels like an adventure to you, it is an adventure. And maybe this is a com- two books. Two book titles, Adventure is Scalable is the first book, and you can write about that. And then the second book is And Not Comparable, Comparative, Not Comparative. Nice. I like it. (laughs) Franchise. (laughs) All right. Hey, what is the next big adventure or next micro adventure for Al? What I just finished doing was spending a whole year exploring this one small map that I live on. And that led to quite a change in direction in my thinking, really. It's got me far more connected with nature and wildlife than all my time in beautiful, wild, far-off parts of the world. I found paying real attention to what's happening in my neighborhood connected me to the natural world in a way that really surprised me. I've become increasingly concerned about the the harmful way we live our lives in terms of the environment. And then I guess in terms of the adventuring world, that's got me thinking about how can we adventure with purpose? How can we reduce our uh, impact on the environment? And how can the adventures we do not just be fun and worthwhile for ourselves, but also perhaps have something a little bit bigger to them as well? Yeah, trying to get more people caring about actually taking action about fixing the wild places is quite important to me at the moment but how that will manifest in terms of a project i'm not yet sure okay to be determined yes another book title <laughs> oh or even also for- also three words yeah. to be determined i'm sorry i cut you off what did you say the key for succeeding at an adventure is to be determined oh i like that I like that. That's a nice play on words right there. Oh, thank you. That's two puns in one episode. You'll have no listeners left. You're not as slow, simple, and miserable as you made out to be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Al, you know where we are right now? Where are we? Hiking hacks. 
Hiking Hacks. It's time for you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. Hope you have one in reserve because you've been dropping trail wisdom throughout the episode. That also wasn't a question. I like the awkward silence, though. Yes. Uh, Al, tell us. I thought you were about to play a jingle. (laughs) Tell us uh, what your hiking hack is. Okay, my hiking hack is, I think it's really important to have simplicity when you're out on a long hiking trail, to to have minimalism, to travel light, the lighter your pack the less pain you'll be in and the more you'll enjoy it. So you want to travel really light. However, when you set up your tent at the end of the day, it's nice to have a bit of luxury. And the way that I've managed to, on my adventures, have both luxury but also without the hassle of expense or weight is that I take popcorn with me, the the kernels, the unpopped little yellow seeds that you get from the grocery stores, and I cook them in a pan when I stop for the evening and you get a whole pan of salty popcorn. It tastes delicious and it feels, popcorn to me feels like a treat, a luxury. I'm going to the cinema, so it's like an evening treat and I tend to eat that while I write my journal and I watch the sunset before I then cook my evening meal. I love that. Best, best movie ever. I mean, eating your popcorn and just watching the sunset. Yeah, watching the sunset or watching the campfire, caveman television. It's, yeah, it's lovely caveman television all right so there you have it we are just about done here hope our listeners enjoyed our time with alistair i want to thank you for joining us this week al how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your next adventures so my name's alistair humphreys and you'll find that on whichever social media channel or youtube channel you're interested in i've got a website with newsletters and you'll find my books on amazon or all the other places you buy books so yeah, if you find Alistair Humphreys in whatever bit interests you, I should be there. Okay. Remember to check out Hiker Trash Radio on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at hikertrashradio at gmail.com. Off the beaten path. Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we need to find a way to get our adventure fixed. Al, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This could be a book, movie, documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path, and it's sponsored by the outdoor clothing brand Magnet Designs. What do you have for us? And that is a question. Oh, crikey, you've thrown some pressure on me here because I love recommending books, but I could think of thousands, but I'll think of one straight away, which is a travel book that is probably my favorite book and inspired me to go play the violin badly through Spain. And the reason I love it is because it's a great adventure, but it's by a normal person. It's not some sort of heroic expert person. The book's called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning by Laurie Lee. And he's a young guy in the 1930s, walked from England to Spain. It's a beautiful, poetic little book, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. And then a short film that I really love. It's only seven or eight minutes. It's on YouTube. It's called Of Fells and Hills. It's by an American runner called Ricky Gates. And it's about hill running in the beautiful hills of northern England, near where I grew up. And it finishes with the question of, he asks, maybe in the end, is a single mountain range enough exploration for an entire lifetime and that phrase really stuck with me and i stole it 
for the projects I've been doing recently when I asked myself, is a single map enough exploration for an entire lifetime and committed to spending a year just exploring my local neighborhood? So there's two suggestions for you. I love it. Two for one. Fantastic. What have we not asked you? And before we wrap things up, just one more segment for you called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss today? I know there's a lot left on the outline, but uh, anything you want to share in particular? Oh, gosh. I'm enjoying the different accents, by the way, of your people in the jingles. This is good. Um, so that is, I have, to, I have to share, that is Half Calf. That's my daughter who was born in California and raised in California, but she fashions herself as an expert in accents. And I've talked to a number of people uh, overseas who have said, I don't recognize that accent. It, it's a mishmash of an ever-evolving type accent. So, <laughs> It was fairly British. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what haven't you asked me? Gosh, I think something that I think um, if someone's looking for a far better podcast to listen to than Hiker Trash Radio, can I offer a suggestion? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I will offer this because I don't. I feel that it's complementary rather than a conflicting one. But I think a podcast that I was um, a guest on recently, which I've really appreciated, is called A Thousand Hours Outside. It's an American podcast, and it's uh, a woman uh, called Ginny, and she's aiming most at really young kids. So if the listeners have got young kids, there's a, a statistic that kids spend a thousand hours a year on their screens, which is insane and terrifying and so her podcast is about trying to get kids to spend a thousand hours outside so if you're a parent of young kids it's a podcast about trying to get your youngsters outdoors and adventuring and i think it's really worthwhile and worth shouting about yes parents make sure your kids are listening to that podcast and make sure you are listening to this podcast how about that <laughs> yeah all right. Hey, we are finished. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Al. We wish you the very best in your future adventures, whatever those might be once you figured them out. And we hope you'll consider coming back, as you've promised, to share some more epic stories. I'd love to come back on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. I'll come back as promised when you get me Steven Spielberg, as promised. Okay. I'll get right to work on that. As we close <laughs> up today, any shout outs to friends and family, Al? No, I never do that. No, no. This is the end of Mr. Nice Guy Al. No, this is all about me. <laughs> all right. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you've forgotten your popcorn and you have to watch Caveman TV without it. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. <laughs>